Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday, July the 21st, 2022. It is currently 1128 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, where hopefully my problems will be to your benefit. Hopefully, my frustration will be to your spiritual edification. That's my hope. It's it's been a crazy, crazy, again, basically 24 hours. Um, We've had some lots of issues with the internet. I was having problems with my internet modem and router. So at 9 a.m. this morning, I was standing in front of Suddenlink here in Abilene, Texas, And I said, this modem is garbage. I'd like an upgrade. So they gave me a shiny brand new modem, Wi-Fi 6. They gave me a Wi-Fi extender. And I came home and uh, the the modem would not work. The modem would not work. And I was like, what is happening? So I called them after a very long time. We finally got everything up and running. Then I tried to set up the Wi-Fi extender. And guess what? It would not work. So I had to call them again. They went through all kinds of different ideas. Finally, we got that working. So currently, I have internet. Currently, I have a Wi-Fi extender sitting right behind me. And the lights are white. Okay, that's good. They're not red. And currently, on Spreaker, we have the red live button that's not spinning around saying reconnecting. And on the Church One Sermons 2.0 app, That software, I have the green indicator. So right now, everything is working fine. However, you can call me Doubting Thomas. You can call me, you know, O ye of little faith, but I don't have faith that it's going to work very, very long. So what can I do in this current situation to, one, ensure that everything is going to work right moving into the future, but not just boring you or wasting your time? What I want to do today is return to our Bible study exercise for this week, where we are studying Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, and we're also studying 2 Kings chapter 5, at least verses 1 through 7. We are looking at those two sections, and the theme really is, who is your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So I had everyone look at Luke 10, 25, 37, and 2 Kings 5. I told everyone to try to find all the things that are similar, all the things that are different. And this is my challenge for you today. When it comes to the theme, who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? We know clearly how Luke 10, 25, 37 would fit into that conversation. Do you see anything in the 2 Kings passage, 2 Kings chapter 5, that would also lead to having something to say in regards to this topic, to this conversation. Who is my neighbor? I want you to think about that. But here's what I'm going to do. I've been given permission by Through the Bible Radio and the ministry of J. Vernon McGee that I am allowed to take their audio and play it. It's not, it's, it has nothing to do with like reviewing it or critiquing it because that would fall under fair use. No, I've been given the right to play their material whenever I want on my program. I've been given that permission. They were very kind, very generous to do that. So here's what I did. I grabbed J. Vernon McGee's 
series, Five Years Through the Bible. Remember, he went through the Bible. uh, He did it multiple times, but I grabbed one of his series where he went through the Bible in five years, and I found where he begins teaching on 2 Kings chapter 5, because I've been doing the work on Luke 10. I thought, you know what? We'll go and listen to Dr. J. Vernon McGee from years ago teach on 2 Kings 5, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to let it play everything he has to say about 2 Kings 5 and everything he has to say about 2 Kings chapter 6. You're getting bonus material, all right? So I want, but as you listen to him talk about 2 Kings 5, I want you to ask yourself, does this have anything to do with the theme, with the topic, with the idea? Who is my neighbor? All right, Luke 10 clearly does, but the person asking that question, who is my neighbor, is doing so in order to try to justify himself. He doesn't really care about the answer. He's more doing it to justify himself, which goes back to our discussion on why do you ask spiritual questions? Why do you ask questions? So um, we'll get into more discussion there because uh, it's interesting. A different people, I think, read reads the question in Luke 10 that the lawyer is asking. I think some people look at it as he's being sincere, and I don't look at it as he's being sincere, but We'll have that conversation at another time. So what we're going to do, though, is you're going to get the opportunity to not hear me. That I know that makes many of you happy. I know right now what many of you are doing, like, wait, we're going to have an entire program where we don't have to hear him? Now, for every one of you, who have been cheering because you're not going to have to hear me. For every one of you that's been applauding, you will be receiving a bill for $100 because of your insensitivity to me because you should be saying, well, after everything you've gone through this week, no, we would love to hear you. No, okay, I understand. Hearing Dr. J. Vernon McGee, who is obviously extremely famous and his ministry has impacted millions of people, that's probably far more beneficial, edifying to you than to listen to me. So we're going to go listen to Dr. J. Vernon McGee for the next 44 minutes and 15 seconds uninterrupted. Again, I've been given permission to do this, so we're not violating any copyright law. We've been given permission. And so the following is brought to you by Through the Bible Radio, the ministry of J. Vernon McGee. We greatly appreciate them giving me the permission to do this. This goes back many years ago. If you've never heard Dr. J. Vernon McGee, some people despise his accent. They hate it. Some people love it. Dr. J. Vernon McGee was very influential in me because he came on, well, he, was, he came on early in the morning, so I, I heard him, I would listen to him almost every day, and he also, he had a kind of a Q&A program that would come on on Saturdays, and as I was driving to the first Bible Institute that I attended and graduated from, I would listen to his program. It was about a 25, 30-minute drive, I think, to, to the Bible Institute that I attended, and I would listen to Dr. J. Vernon McGee answer these questions about the Bible, about theology. And then typically I'd get to the school and then ask the same questions. And then, well, we would always have good conversations in regards to it. So that brings back great memories. Um, and I, don't, I, I can't say that I agree with all of his doctrine, and all of his theology, but I, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how awesome it is that he had a ministry where all he tried to do was teach through the Bible Every episode, for he would do these five-year journeys through the Bible. He would tell everyone, get on the Bible bus. We're going to spend the next five years going through the Bible. And then they would send out notes and outlines for free. I mean, the ministry was so 
I mean, how many ministries are there today teaching through the entire Bible? I wanted to try to do something similar for our uh, BBC Bible Institute, but trying to do that and trying to do the Theology Central podcast and everything else, yeah, it, it wasn't going to quite work out the way I want to. But that attempt to do the Bible Institute turned into the Bible study exercise podcast series that you're currently listening to. So the reason we're doing the Bible study exercises is really, in some ways, our own way of kind of paying homage, kind of honoring what Dr. J. Vernon McGee did. Because our Bible study exercises, we, well, we dig through a text of scripture and we spend a considerable amount of time doing so. So um, I hope this works. The, uh, the, The main goal of this is not, is first of all, your spiritual edification, but it's also for my sanity because this allows me to just hit play and then check and make sure it's working. And if it works, great. If it crashes, well, then it's not me spending 40 minutes teaching and it's all gone. It's 40 minutes of me playing an audio clip that crashes that I could play at any other time. So um, I hope you will, I hope you'll be uh I hope you'll be blessed by this and it will be spiritually beneficial to you. I apologize. I have not slept. uh, So I've been awake now for over 24 hours. So hopefully, hopefully everything goes well here. But I think all of our problems seem to be better. I I keep looking at the green light and I'm, I'm like, forget this. Forget Dr. J. Vernon McGee. All right, let's go back to Luke 10. All right, let's go to, I'm ready. I'm ready to now see, I'm excited because I think everything's working. Now I want to do the teaching, but I'm going to stop myself. All right. I'm going to put restraint. Stop. Because you don't want to hear me this morning. You want to hear Dr. J. Vernon McGee from through the Bible radio. I have it queued up to right where he's getting ready. Basically in second Kings four, he basically was like, Hey, I'm going to give most of this chapter to you guys. You read it because I'm ready to move on to 2 Kings chapter 5. The audio is not the loudest, so you may have to turn up the volume, uh, but it's, it's, I've got my volume cranked to 100, so I, I've done everything I can do for you. All right, so here we go. Dr. J, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, through the Bible radio, this is his series on 2 Kings. You're going to hear everything he says about 2 Kings 5 and 2 Kings chapter 6 as bonus material. And that will cost you at least $100. I'm joking. All right, here we go. Enjoy. And I would love to get your thoughts on what he has to say. And please remember to answer that question. Luke 10 tries to answer the question, who is our neighbor? Does 2 Kings 5 offer anything to that conversation? Message me today and let me know what you think about that, because I love hearing from you guys. All right, here we go. Dr. J. Vernon McGee, God bless. Now, friends, we come to one of the most interesting chapters, I think, in the life of this man, Elisha, the prophet, and it reveals that he's probably as rugged as Elijah was and that he had as good a sense of humor as Elijah had. Fact of the matter is, I think that the Lord has a sense of humor And he likes to use men that have a sense of humor like Elijah and Elisha here. And you can't help but smile when you read this incident here, although it deals with a man in a very desperate situation. That is, a man who is a leper. And I want to spend a little time with this because it's so important. Now, let me read verse 1 of 2 Kings 5. Now, Naaman captain of the host of the king of Syria, 
He was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. This man is before us now. There's one verse tells us, I think, all about him. His name was Naaman. He was a pagan. He was captain of the host of the king of Syria. And he was a great man with his master. And I think that we can say that he was a great man. He also was not only a great man, but he was an honorable man. Although a pagan, he is an honorable man. And then fourth thing is said of him, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Now, that is quite remarkable. I'm sure that you'll agree that he is a man that the Lord had used. Now, you will find that the Lord uses men in this world that are not Christian. That may seem strange to you. But you don't have to read very far in the Word of God. You find that God used Pharaoh. God used King Nebuchadnezzar. God used Cyrus. God used Alexander the Great. And God uses this man. Now, I don't think he's quite as great a man as these we've named, but he was a great man. And God had used him. And that is a remarkable thing that can be said about him. The character of this man is quite remarkable, you see. And we're told also, the fifth thing here, he was also a mighty man of valor. Now, this man was a Syrian, and he was a generous man, and these things that are mentioned here, they count in the high court of heaven. God doesn't despise these things. And this heathen was used of God. By him the Lord had given deliverance. Now, we find, though, that having said all these fine things about him, now we have to say this, but he was a leper. You know, there are a lot of folk in this world today that you can say some very nice things about them. They're not Christians. You can say that they are fine men, that they've done fine things. But you see, you have to conclude it by saying he's a sinner. <laughs> All have sinned. And no matter how nice these men might be, and women for that matter, they're all sinners in the sight of God. After all, the colonel's lady and Judy O'Grady, they're sisters under the skin. All are sinners. And it says, but he was a leper here. Now, lepers were not excluded from society in pagan nations. It was only in Israel. And it's quite interesting. God would give them that because it did keep leprosy from spreading, of course. Today, they are put in a colony, as you know. And God did that way before any pagan nation even thought of it. This is something for you to think about, friends. Here is a book that tells about rules that concern lepers. And it's not until you come 
into what we would call a civilized day that man decided this is the thing that should be done. Now, leprosy in Scripture is a type of sin. It's incurable by human means to a certain extent. However, many were cured, and only God can cure sin. It's not incurable either, but it's difficult. Only God can cure sin. Only God can save the sinner. So here we have a man that you can say some very fine things about him. And man today has good points. Some people become a little impatient with me because I put such a tremendous emphasis on the fact that men are sinners. Now, the reason I do that is because there are so many that are humanists today and they play man up and they fail to mention man is a sinner. That is something that is not preached on too much today. So I overemphasize it maybe. I just make up for the lack. And that's what I'm trying to do. But man has his good points. But he's fundamentally a sinner. Now, this man, Naaman, he tried to cover up his leprosy, but he couldn't cure it. A great many people today whitewash sin. What they need is to be washed white. And only Christ can do that today. Now, we have something else here that is quite interesting we have one of those unknown characters of the Bible, unnamed, unknown, but a great person. I have always wanted to run a series of messages, not on the great man of the Bible, but a little-known, unknown, unnamed characters in the Bible that in heaven are great. They're big people. And we're going to find, here's one of them here. Now, let me read verse 2. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. I don't know the name of this maid, but a little Hebrew girl. And she's, to me, as great as Queen Esther. She's as great as Ruth the Moabitess. She is as great as Bathsheba. She's great as Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. No, no, I can't give you her name. This little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. The little maid now, you see, she's in no position to give orders. But just one day... She uttered a sigh, and she says, Oh, if my master just would go down and see the prophet down in Samaria, and he'd recover him of his leprosy. Elisha had quite a reputation, you see. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Somebody overheard it. Maybe the wife did. Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go. And I'll send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. 
And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, he ran his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Why, well, he said, I'm not God. I can't heal him. I always feel like that anyone that claims to have a gift of healing is almost blaspheming, friend. The king of Israel said, well, I don't claim to be that. And Elisha didn't either, by the way. He was never known as that. And the Lord Jesus was never known as that, by the way. That was not the emphasis at all. But will you notice here, the king of Israel comes to the conclusion, what he's trying to do is start a quarrel with me. And he sends this man down here, and I won't be able to do a thing about it. It was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. Not much of a king, but there's a prophet of God in Israel. Send him down to me. So Naaman came with his horses, with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. Now this man from a very great kingdom in the north, in fact, a kingdom in the north that right now was bearing down upon the nation Israel and had already had victors over them, and he expected the red carpet to be rolled out for him. And what happened? Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. Now, this is the thing that he was to do. And my friend, may I say to you that this is something that just hurt the pride of Naaman. Elisha actually received this man rudely. In fact, he didn't receive him at all. He didn't even go to the door to meet him. Why, you'd think the prophet would come out and begin to bow and scrape to this great captain from up in Syria. He didn't even come to the door. He sent his services, go tell him down, wash in the Jordan River, and let him dip himself down there. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, said, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. And do you think now that this man Naaman is going to Except this? No, he's not. Why? Because he's a very proud man, <laughs> and he never received treatment like this before. And do you know that the Lord's not only going to heal him of leprosy, he's going to heal him of pride also. It's an interesting thing. When God saves you, he'll generally take out of your life that thing that offends. And pride just happens to be one of the things that God hates. We hear a great deal about God is love, but God also hates. And you can't love without hating. You can't love the good without hating the evil. If you love your children, you'd hate any mad dog that came in the yard to bite your little one. You'd want to kill that mad dog. In no unmistakable language, God declares that he hates the pride of heart. Over in Proverbs six seventeen, there are seven things that God hates. And you know what number one on God's hate parade is? A proud look. God says he hates that. He hates that as much as he hates murder. James in 
the fourth chapter, verse 6, old practical James says, God resisteth the proud, but he giveth grace unto the humble. Pride is the undoing of man, actually. It's a great sin. In Proverbs 16:18, we read, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. In Proverbs 11, 2, Pride cometh, then cometh shame. And in Proverbs 29, 23, Man's pride shall bring him low. Now, why does God hate pride? Well, the definition of pride is excessive self-esteem. It's inordinate self-esteem. It's more than a reasonable delight in one's position and achievements. Paul put it like this, Man ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Pride is placing an exorbitant price on self. It's demanding more than your worth. Have you ever heard it said, I wish I could buy that man for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth? Pride is the difference between what you are and what you think you are. That is pride. And it was the pride of Satan. It was the sin of Satan that brought him down. God says, I'll bring you down, though you exalt yourself to heaven. And that was the sin of Edom. Man's pride runs counter to God's plan. And whenever they meet this friction and there's no compromise, it's always a head-on collision. You see, God's plan of salvation is the supreme answer to man's pride. God lays man low. He takes nothing from man. And Paul could say of himself when he met Jesus Christ, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. He gave up religion, he gave up everything, and he counted it but dung. He said, I flushed it. Christ and pride do not go together. And you can't be proud and at the same time trust Christ as your Savior. And if you trust Christ as your Savior... You've laid all your pride in the dust, my friend. Now, this story of Naaman is the finest example that we have of that. A great man, to be sure. God labels the things that mark him out as a man of great character and ability. But he was a leper. He was a sinner. And God is not only going to heal him of leprosy, he's going to heal him of his pride. And believe me, Old Elisha's insulted him. Elisha wouldn't even roll out any kind of carpet for him. Elisha wouldn't even come to the door, Sonny's servant. says, tell him, go on down there to the Jordan River and dip in seven times. Now, will you notice this man? Naaman was wroth. That's verse 11. He went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. You know, that's religion. <laughs> oh, my. If I could just gotten in a healing line and had him put his hand on me and had him call upon God and pray, pour a little oil on me, why, that would have been great. That's religion, friend. When God does it, he does it by faith. And he lays your pride in the ground. You don't go to a man. You go to him. And he's the great physician. 
And so he's to go down there. He said, I thought this would be the thing. And now notice what he says. Are not a banner and far par rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now this is one place where I agree with Naaman. I saw those beautiful rivers up in Lebanon. I went up to the city of Byblos from Beirut, and I stopped up there where they call it the calling cards of the great men of the earth. They left inscriptions there. I walked up that river there quite a ways, probably half a mile. Beautiful water as it comes rippling down over those rocks. Now, let me say this to you. I hear people sing on Jordan's stormy banks, I stand. I hear them talk about Roll Jordan Road. It's a muddy stream, friend. It's not near as pretty. I rather agree with Naaman. Why in the world should I go down and dip down there? Why not go up there work and get some clean water? But you see, a lot of folk hate to come to the cross. It's a place of ignominy, a place of shame, and they don't want to come there. They want to do some great thing, and that's what this man does. Oh, the pride of Naaman. The rivers of Damascus are better, and they were. He said, drive on. The impudence and impertinence of the prophet to tell me to do this. My friend, you'll have to come to the cross of Christ. You don't come to Jesus and stand up as a proud man say you've got something you are resting on when you come to him. It's just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Charlotte Elliott was singing one night, lovely voice, opera singer. And there was an unknown preacher there, a young man. After she'd sung, he went over to her, congratulated, said, you have such a wonderful voice. But he said, that voice is a voice God could use. But he said, you'll have to come to him just like any other sinner. And she was offended. She says, how dare you? I'm not like any other sinner. I want you to know I'm a famous opera singer. (laughs) And so she went home that night. She couldn't forget what that young preacher said. And she was restless. She couldn't sleep. And finally, why, she got up out of bed and she wrote, Just as I am without one plea, that that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And my friend, if you come, that's the way you're going to have to come. This is the way it is. And this proud fellow, he rides off, you see. So he turned and went away in a rage. That's the last part, verse 12 here of Second Kings 5. Verse 13, And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather than when he saith that he wash and be clean? Now, if he had told you to do some great thing, you would have attempted it. And how many people today would like to do some great thing for salvation? You don't do a great thing. He did the great thing for us. All we have to do is receive it. We come as beggars. These servants, now they beg him. 
Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And I'd give anything in the world if I could have been there and watched that. I think every time he went down, he'd come up and look at himself. He said, this is absurd. I'm not getting clean. I'm not getting rid of my leprosy. And down he goes again. But he went down seven times. And when he came up, I read now again the last part of verse 14. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And they came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, now I know that there's no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. And he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I'll receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Elisha is as difficult to get along with as Elijah is. Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules' burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace, so he departed from him a little way. Now, this man, Elisha, had a servant by the name of Gehazi. And he hated to see that handsome reward slip. And so he took out after Naaman, and he caught up with him. And he said, If you don't mind, why, we'll be glad to take your offering. And when he came to the tower, he took them from his hand, bestowed them in the house, and let the men go, and they departed. He went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee? When the man turned again from his chair to meet thee, is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servants and maid servants? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Why greed? May I say to you another awful sin, a great sin of Naaman was pride, the great sin of Gehazi was greed, awful sin. My beloved, it's leprosy of the soul. Now today, friends, we come to the sixth chapter of Second Kings, and in this we have two of the most exciting experiences that any man ever had. The first one has to do with the floating axe head. And the second has to do with a date with danger and destiny at Dothan. Now, we have a little book that we're sending out to those who support our program. I should say our notes and outlines. You don't have to send anything for those if you would like to have them. But this little book, it has both of these messages, and they'll be more complete than I can possibly give them here today but I want to lift the high points out of this. We've seen this man, Elisha, is outstanding. He's different from Elijah. After all, Elijah was an extrovert. Elisha's an introvert. 
Elijah's ministry was public. Look at him on Mount Carmel. And Elisha's ministry was private. The way we saw last time he dealt with Naaman, the captain of the Syrian host. This man, Elijah, was spectacular, fire and rain. But this man, Elisha, he's a silent individual. We'll see here at Dothan and a mountain filled with horses and chariots. Elijah ministered to princes, and this man, Elisha, ministered to common people, as we're going to see right now. And we find that the two men are different in many, many ways. Elijah didn't die. Elisha did. May I say that I think both of them represent the two aspects of the rapture, the living or to be caught up and those that have died are to be raised from the dead. Now, will you notice that it's not the contrast we're interested in here today, but to see the popularity of this man, Elisha. And I begin reading at chapter 6, verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Now, this reveals, by the way, the great popularity of Elisha. He taught in a theological seminary, the school of the prophets. The school grew. It needed larger quarters, and it was due to the presence and popularity of Elisha. He was a great teacher, you see. And the strength, actually, and value of any school is the character and the ability of the faculty. It hasn't anything to do with buildings. Today, we put the emphasis on buildings. And, of course, in Southern California, we build them and then they burn them down. And then they want to tax us some more. But the value is in the teachers. And it's not the methods, but the man. It's not larger buildings, but bigger man. It's not endowments, but endowments of spiritual strength. It's not the stuff, but the staff. It's not money, but the moral condition. Someone said that a college was a law with John Hopkins on one end and a student on the other end. And the schools, I think, in America are not suffering from a housing shortage. They're suffering from a character shortage. And you look at the faculty that gets on TV today and their protest movements, and when I see them, I say, God pity the youth of America today. It's not more pay they need. They need more spiritual power. Now, will you notice verse 2? It says, Let us go, we pray thee, into Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. By the way, this reveals that there was a great deal of timber along the Jordan Valley. That land was timbered in that day. They wanted to go down, cut down the timber, and build a school down there. They'd have a good campus in that particular place, by the way. And this is just a personal touch, I think, now that we're coming to here. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And he answered, I'll go. What a personal touch. Here is a professor that was really popular because he taught the Word of God. Do students ordinarily want to take their teacher with them beyond the boundary of the campus? They say, no, he's either a square or he's queer or he's a brain. 
and any one of these would disqualify him. But Elisha, they wanted to go with them. What a testimony. And Elisha went with them. So he went with them. And when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. They got busy, you see. They went to work. Now, here's a student body that wasn't afraid to work, and neither were the professors. This is unusual, I must confess. Now, we have in verse 5, But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried, Alas, Master, for it was borrowed. Now, that seems like a small tragedy, does it not? It's sort of much ado about nothing. It's a tempest in a teapot. And you want to know how ridiculous it is? There stands that little fella, one of the students looking down in the muddy Jordan for the axe that went off the handle. I suppose he could sing on Jordan's stormy banks. I stand and cast a wistful eye looking for my axe. Well, you know, this reveals something. How different this was from this man Elijah. The very interesting thing is that this fellow here would have been passed by Elijah. I think Elijah would have said to him, forget it. That's too little for us to fool with. But, you know, God is concerned about the small events in our lives. We're told to pray about everything. Everything means little things, too. As someone asked the late Camel Morgan years ago. Do you think we ought to pray about the little things in our lives? And he said, Madam, can you mention anything in your life that's big to God? Well, it's all little stuff to him, but he's interested in what we call little stuff. You see, you remember when the Lord Jesus was here? The tramp and tumult of the crowd didn't drown out the cry of blind Bartimaeus. And in the crowd there on another occasion, a frail and feeble woman in the crowd touched. And he said, who touched me? He was interested. And the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. But actually, this is not so small. In this day of gadgets today, it seems very small to us, because you could have gone down to the hardware store are one of the discount stores, and you could have replaced this very easily. But in that day, they didn't have very many axe heads, by the way. And we're told, you remember back in the days of Saul and Jonathan, it is said in 1 Samuel 13:22, So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. May I say to you, there was a shortage of weapons there. And you may be sure there are not many axes around. And this fellow, the axe came off here. And he says it's borrowed. Now, most commentators have expelled this young theological student from seminary. He's a dropout. They give him two demerits. They say that this is carelessness. And then they say it was borrowed and he shouldn't have borrowed it. Man, I heard a man gave quite a lecture on the fact he shouldn't have borrowed it. Well, if he were guilty, why didn't Elisha, his teacher, discipline him? And Elisha, I think, absolved him of all the charges that were made against him. Now, will you notice what happened here? This is a very interesting thing, and I'll move right through this. And the man of God, notice this, said, 
where fell it? And he showed him the place, and he cut down a stick, cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Now, first of all, let me say he was not careless, actually careful. You see, there was a danger of an axe head coming off. It was a dangerous weapon. And there were other students present. God had given a rule that you're to be careful about the use of that. Read Deuteronomy 19.5. This fellow had exercised utmost precaution. He aimed the axe head toward the river. He didn't aim it toward a student. That's the reason when it came off, it went into the river. And traffic officer stopped a lady that ran into another car in downtown Los Angeles and said to her, Lady, you are to drive that, not aim it. Well, this theological student aimed it in the right direction, by the way. And then let's look at that matter. It was borrowed. Well, he's a poor seminary student. He couldn't afford an axe. It was sort of like owning a Cadillac convertible. And I happen to know, having been a theological student, that the old clunk that I own, it barely made it out off the campus and got back in the evening. You see, those of us who handle God's property and not ours, after all, whatever we've got, Paul said, what have you that you didn't receive? And we're stewards of the manifold grace of God. I hear people say, can we borrow something that belongs to the church? Well, after all, this boy here was just a poor preacher, and he probably had a neighbor that lent him to him. Now, I'd like to ask a question. I'd like to know who lent this student an old axe that was a dangerous weapon, head that was apt to come off. May I say to you, I think it was a fellow in that day who today is the same fellow who thinks that if he sends his old clothing to the mission and his old Christmas cards to the missionary, he's giving God a very valuable offering. We criticize the church, and we criticize missionaries for wanting this thing and that thing. Well, this student was distressed, and he borrowed it. And this man shouldn't have given him an old axe. I bet he kept his new axe at home. He couldn't reimburse the man, and he's not a skin diver, and he couldn't dredge the river. So Elisha says, where did it fall? Now, somebody says, why did he ask that question? If he's a prophet of God, he should know. I think Elisha knew, and he knew something else, too. He knew the Holy Spirit needed to make a lesson. And you accuse that student of carelessness? Why, my friend, if he'd been careless, he wouldn't have known where it fell. The student could point right to the spot. He showed him the place. He could point right to it. Somebody says, well, we'll explain this miracle away. He saw the axe head in the water. Well, if you say that, you haven't seen the Jordan River. It's muddy. And somebody says he's just lucky. Well, if you say that, you're rather naive, aren't you? This is a miracle. The iron did swim, we're told here. The iron did swim. And that's contrary to all known physical laws. Since the day of John Randolph in 1834, who launched ships of iron and steel have floated on the seven seas, and it's no miracle. But, my friend, it was a miracle for an axe head on the bottom of the Jordan River to float to the top like a cork. Oh, I grant it's not startling or sensational. It won't compare to the translation of Elijah when he stepped into a chariot of fire and sailed into space. 
I submit to you the miracle of the floating axe head is greater than taking off in a chariot. An axe head dormant on the bottom of the muddy Jordan. It's raised, resurrected, restored to the owner, replaced on the handle, made useful, utilitarian, and functional, if you please. My friend, there's a marvelous lesson here. Man is like that axe head. At the fall, we became totally depraved, went down into the waters of death and defeat, lost to God, no longer enjoy life and be useful and purposeful in our existence, far from God. And we try to find something to do. Occupies time down here. And a little man travels. He paints pictures. He flies. He swims. He wars. He drinks. He takes drugs. He tries to drown out the futility of life and fill the vacuum with many things. Nothing satisfies Unrest like a million rats, knowing at his soul. And God cut down a stick. He cast it into the waters of death. That stick is the cross of Christ. And Christ came out of the waters of death, who his own self, by our sins and his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed." Man can rise from the waters of death and judgment through Christ, placed back in the handle of God's plan and purpose, geared to God's program, and he can say, I can do all things in Christ who strengtheneth me. No longer live an aimless and useless life and a meaningless existence. Now he has a new direction, and he can be brought close to God. The greatest miracle, friends, not to go to the moon, the greatest miracle is to be lifted out of the mire of sin and given a meaning to life today. This is a tremendous thing, you see. Now, let me very briefly look at this that has to do with Elisha down at Dothan. Dothan's an interesting place. That's the place where Joseph got into trouble. But here's the place where God delivered Elisha. Now, Ben-Hadad came to the conclusion there must be a spy in his camp. And he tried to find out. He discovered it wasn't a spy in his camp. It was Elisha down in Israel that was calling the shots. And so he sent a whole army down to get him. And believe me, friends, that was certainly a compliment to this man that he had to have an old army to come against him. Verse 13, he said, "'Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him.' And it was told him, saying, Behold, he's in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? This servant of Elisha went out and saw that they were surrounded by the enemy. And he says, what in the world can we do? And this is what Elisha said. He answered, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. You and I are living in a day when Christians are in the minority. We've heard a great deal about minority groups. But the minority group today are believers. I don't mean church members. I mean real Bible believers. We are a real minority. And sometimes we develop an Elijah complex. 
What we need is an Elisha complex and find out, as Martin Luther put it, one with God is a majority. And so Elisha prayed, here's verse 17, and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, a mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And he found out that he was protected. Now, let's understand one thing. At Dothan, Joseph had no chariots of fire that protected him. His brothers took him, and he would have been murdered. But they sold him into slavery into Egypt. But regardless of whether there's chariots of fire around you today or whether there's coming into your life trouble, the trouble can never come to you unless it gets through those chariots of fire. God won't let it come to you. You remember in the book of Job, Satan had to say concerning him, you put a hedge around him. My friend, today, God is on your side, but somebody says, I'm in trouble. If you're God's man, he's permitted it. Now, why? I don't know. Don't ask me that. But he's permitted it to come to you for a very definite purpose. Now, we find here that Elisha did a very unusual thing. He asked God to smite the hosts of the Syrians with blindness, and he did. And he led them all the way into Samaria and told them that he was leading them where Elisha was. And when they got to Samaria, he just turned them over to the king of Samaria. Now, the king of Samaria wanted to slay them. Elisha said, don't do that. You feed them. Send them home. And may I say that gesture should have quieted down the Syrians. But I think the Syrians in that day are very much like the Syrians today. They want to fight. And they are apparently not prepared for it. In verse 24, it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine at that time, and we're told that an ass's head was sold for fourscore pieces of silver. And you remember the incident, and we'll take that up, of course, next time, that at this particular time, Elisha, verse 32, sat in his house, the elders sat with him, and the king sent a man from before him. But ere the messenger came to him, he said to the eldest, See ye how this son of a murder hath sent to take away mine head. Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door, hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he yet talked with him, behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? And so Elisha then delivers a message, and it's one of the strangest messages. And here is another thrilling incident in the life of this man. Do not underrate or undersell Elisha. He's on a par with Elijah, but in just a little different way. Well, that was the late Dr. J. Vernon McGee. We are very grateful that his ministry has given us permission to air his teaching whenever we would like. 
We typically don't do so. Sometimes we may use something. We were using it more so for when we were doing the Bible Institute podcast, but it worked out perfectly today because this week for the Bible study exercise, we're working on Luke 10 and 2 Kings 5. So you were able to get a little bit of a bonus. You didn't have to listen to me. You heard Dr. J. Vernon McGee go through 2 Kings 5 and 2 Kings chapter 6. Obviously, there were some sections there that he skipped, but you can hear well, there was a lot we could analyze there. There's a lot we could question. Uh, but you can pro- you can kind of meditate on it, think about it. If you have any questions in regards to anything he had to say, specifically about Second Kings five one through let me see here Second Kings five one through seven Second Kings five one through seven. If anything specifically that he said about that, let me know and we will address it in, a, in the next episode of the Bible study exercise. Um, I, I want you to continue to work on Second Kings five and Luke ten. And remember, the whole theme this week is, who is your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Do we see anything that would relate to that concept in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 7? And do you say, and remember, you're supposed to be looking for the correlation between 2 Kings 5, verses 1 through 7, and Luke 10, I think 25 to 37, what, what things fit together, and just putting those two together. The key this week is for you to spend a lot of time in both of those passages, a lot of time reading them, meditating, and talking about them. It's already Thursday, so before we know it, the week will be over. We'll be moving on to another uh, Bible study exercise. These weeks go by quick, especially this week. So, But I hope that this will pro- prove to be somewhat beneficial. It helped me because we made it 57 minutes, and we never lost internet connection in any way, shape, or form. So it accomplished that test, but I wanted it to be somewhat beneficial and spiritually edifying for you. I hope that was. Some people love Dr. J. Vernon McGee's teaching style. Some people hate it. You can draw your own conclusion. He does use a lot of typology there, which we could have a, a very lengthy discussion about. I've done uh, some, I, I'm, I'm, I'm critical of a lot of typology. I mean, you can let me know what you think in regards to his use of it. All right. I think I will stop right there. Um, I don't know what the rest of the day or evening is going to look like, but if you have the Church One app, make sure your notifications are on, and whenever we'll go live, you'll be the first to know. You can contact me at newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Until I'm back live on the air, spend time in God's Word, 2 Kings 5, 1 through 7, Luke 10, 25 to 37. Live in those passages. Read them and read them and read them until you are no longer studying the passage. The passage is studying you. Thanks for listening. God bless.